This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, very happy to welcome in uh, my good buddy, my compadre in covering tennis all over the world for many years. Of course, he's done a whole heck of a lot more than that. We'll get into that as well as my friend or fearless leader at ESPN Tennis, Mr. Chris Fowler. I love compadre. Actually, underused word. I appreciate that. <laughs> it fits the bill. It's good to talk to you, man. Really good to talk to you. Well, I know you've been keeping yourself busy during this uh, pandemic. I've been enjoying your Instagram stuff, uh, inspirational stuff, as well as some of your workouts as well. I, I know through my own experience over the years how diligent you are about taking care of your body, your, your mind as well, but also your preparation, Chris, that I've noticed over the years is something I've learned from you, how you prepare for your, your day in tennis. I know you do the same in, in, in football and college football. In fact, during the U.S. Open, you're often getting set for the college football ball season so is that something that goes way back for you yeah I think you have to love the process of this job and not just the hours on the air I tell that to broadcasting students who want to do what we do and fortunately I do love the process I love the subject that I study I feel like you know getting ready for a broadcast whether it's football which is as you said far more complicated than tennis and requires uh, or at least I, I use a whole week to get ready for four hours on Saturday night and and it's multi-layered. Tennis is more straightforward. But I, I love it. I, I love watching matches on YouTube. I love digging around. Uh, if we have time, you know, going to practices, talking to coaches, gaining access to the players if we can, which is a challenge in tennis, as you know. But, yeah, all of it that goes into the broadcast, I also enjoy. So it's not just about when the, when the cameras are on. Well, tell me about how you got started. I mean, I know your history as far as coming out of University of Colorado. You started in a local affiliate there in Denver. Um, and was that is this something that you knew from the time you were a teenager before that that you wanted to get into the sports television world? Yeah, about ten years old. My grandparents introduced me to sports. My parents were not sports fans, but I got dropped off from my grandparents on the weekend and started watching. Um, NFL games and baseball games. My grandmother used to sit out in the backyard in a lawn chair mm. uh, with a transistor radio <laughs> and, and a scorebook in her hand. These are all things that don't exist anymore, right. but your younger viewers will have to Google them. But they used to be able to score baseball in a book, and she would do every Cubs game that way. And I would get uh, just really you know, engrossed in the Cubs through her enthusiasm. And this was like, you know, these were like late 60s, early 70s Cubs teams, so they would always break your heart. One of my earliest sports memories was the Cubs collapsed in 69 when the Mets mm. chased them down and, and the Cubs, frankly, choked. And so I learned early on at age seven how painful being a sports fan could be. But that kind of sparked it for me. And I, I kind of knew I wanted to do this forever. And I just recently, though, Patrick, this is interesting. I, I just recently figured out what it was that first attracted me because I always give these talks. Mm -hmm. Remember the essence of what it is that attracted you. Not, not the idea of it, not the trappings of the job, but the essence of what first sparked that interest. And that was just conveying enthusiasm or excitement about something I felt to other people. Mm -hmm. So even though it's been sports forever, there's other things I'm interested in and I like. And I would be just as excited. I believe this. If, if I'd never gotten into sports, but I were talking about travel or wildlife or music, you know, I'm a big music fan, mm -hmm. as you know. So any one of those things, if I could have had an outlet to do that, wouldn't even have to be television. I think I would have been happy doing that, too. Now, I love sports as much as anything. 
and, and sports obviously gives you the opportunity to get excited about stuff and convey enthusiasm to other people. But that is what I hope always comes across. That's why tennis was a good fit for me because I've always loved the sport. Football, obviously, the same way. But I don't try to do everything in the world you can do in this job. You're taught never to say no. But I think some things, if you don't feel authentically pumped up about it, then what I'm talking about, the essence of the gig is just not there. You can do your homework. You can mm-hmm. do a serviceable job. But I don't think it's the same. You know what I mean? No, totally. And I know this for, uh, firsthand from um, your love and my love along with you of going to some great restaurants all around the world. We're lucky <laughs> enough to do that. And I always know that if I call CF and we're going to go out to dinner, we're going to have a good meal. And that's not always the same with some of our um, uh, other no. cohorts. You know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. your, that you, you're open-minded. No, but see, there's an example. Like I could do a thing on food or travel. I mean, I, I bore the hell out of people because they call us for, for travel ideas because they know it's a passion of ours. And eventually they probably go, would you shut the hell up, fella? Enough about this. It's just you're going on too long about travel but, right. or, or food or whatever it is. But, but I, I can't help it when it's, when it's something that I, I love. Um, you know, I, I just love talking to people about it. And so I'm lucky that I found – two sports that happen to be my favorite sports uh, that, that work. Well, as, as a guy who you you uh, admire a lot, and I do too, and anyone who, who watches tennis does, Rafael Nadal calls it the passion, and he certainly got the passion for tennis. You have the passion for living life and for what you do. Tell, t- uh, how did you get your initial start in tennis? And I know you play a little bit of tennis. You're a pretty solid uh, player yourself. <laughs> I've seen you out there. I but, don't know if I'd use solid anymore, but, you know. But, but tell, I'm, tell, I'm enthusiastic. Yeah. Well, tell me how that started, how your interest, because obviously your background in, in covering the other sports, I mean, tennis wasn't, wasn't anything big when you no. first started at ESPN, when you were in your 20s and you did no. Scholastic Sports America. So how did you sort of come around to saying, gee, tennis coverage on ESPN is something I'd like to be a part of? Well, I always loved the sport. I, I take you back, I'm like 11 years old, and Jimmy Connors and Chrissy Everett burst on the scene at Wimbledon. And, you know, at the time, I, I was aware of Labor and Rosewall, but like a lot of young kids, even though these guys are legends, maybe you're not the hugest Ken Rosewall fan, right? Because mm-hmm. it's hard to relate to the guy. He's a couple of generations older. So here comes Jimmy, brash, cocky. We know what he brought to the table. You know, Chrissy obviously was, was uh, a magnetic type of player, too. And so at Wimbledon in 74, they win. I'm 11, and I thought this is this is the coolest thing. And like a lot of people, my my experience at Wimbledon was sort of filtered through listening to the great Dick Enberg and others who broadcast it at the time. So it really began for me there. I got a T2000, probably the worst racket ever made. Maybe maybe you hit with one at one point, although uh, I'm not sure you were allowed to once you got old enough. But, <laughs> uh, Jimmy you know, Jimmy used it pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I know, but nobody else could. It was right. like the steel thing with these coils around it. You, uh-huh. Unless you hit the ball on a dime in the center of the strings, you had no chance of controlling it. But I got the racket. You know, you know. Later, I dumped it and got a, out a Borg Donne, but that's mm-hmm. another story. But you know, I, I I was a decent, enthusiastic kid player. I wish I'd started sooner. Like I wish I'd been exposed to something like the Mackinac Academy younger, because mm-hmm. I probably had enough skills to be a decent, you know, high school, low-level junior player. But I started too late. So by the time I got to high school, um, I just was behind everybody else. But I was always a huge tennis fan because I tried to, you know, you know play a little bit. Right. And when I got to ESPN, as you said, 
you know, I think you were already doing it with Cliff and it, it was going on, but we didn't have the tonnage of coverage and they would never let me cover tennis because it meant coming off something else. Right. They thought was more right. And you were a key player in, in not only with college yeah. football, but also college hoops as well. But I used to travel. Yeah, exactly. And hoops would get in the way of a lot of tournaments. I used to travel around to these tournaments just as a fan. Like I remember going to Stratton Mountain back in the day. It was a fun place to hang out and now later became New Haven and other tournaments like that. I came down when, when the Miami tournament was the lifted mm-hmm. on Keep It's Game. So right. I, I was always an enthusiastic fan traveling to these tournaments as much as I could, as much as my schedule allowed. But, you know, and I kept pressuring ESPN. I, I want to do tennis. I want to do tennis, mostly as a host. Because mm-hmm. the play-by-play thing was covered. But I just wanted to go to the tournaments. And once we started getting the rights to bigger tournaments, and I basically said, hey, listen, I am over college hoops. I don't want to do it anymore. It's been mm-hmm. a good run. It's been 15 years. But uh, in 03, kind of that's when I sort of started my tennis coverage at ESPN at the Australian. And, and then we, we got, obviously, Wimbledon and so on. So it, it became a really important sport for the company. And that's when they sort of let me get into it. Yeah. And um, you continue to play. I mean, I know you said you haven't played as much lately, but I remember you talking about going on vacations with your wife when you guys would go oh, yeah. off and you would you would play a couple times a day. See, if, if you're right, because you got the dedication and you have a little bit of a screw loose, Chris Fowler, that you need <laughs> that you need to become a really good tennis player. And if you had started, I don't have enough real- screws loose like you guys. I I, I was too, probably too grounded. I wanted to have a balanced life. Right. Can, can I say that couples tennis helped ruin my game? I'm at the risk of like Jennifer can't hear me right now. But you can I mean, say that, sure. I mean, I, I'm not the only one that, that's ever said that. But, you know, we, we, we did. We do like to play and and she likes to play. And I've had two shoulder operations in recent years. So it's definitely set me back. You know, mm-hmm. I, I haven't swung a tennis racket actually since my most recent pec shoulder surgery. But I'm looking forward once the courts ever open up, looking forward to getting back out there. Because I do love the fact that um, – you know, it's it's a great fitness sport. It is a sport that I plan to play for a long, long time. And uh, I, I got to do what you guys do. I got I to find a decent wall, mm. hit on the wall to, to dust off the game, get the rust off, right? I don't, <laughs> Listen, I, I still, I we, this, as you know, myself and Brad Gilbert, our, our buddy, we do that all the time. It's a great way to yeah. clear the, you know, you yeah. always talk about clearing your head before a big match or yep. doing a college football thing. And I, I find that to be something very therapeutic for myself, even after all these years of, of, of being able to do it fairly well. Now, recently, but even being yeah. kind of a low level player, I'll say mm-hmm. that it does help. Like I, you know, the reason, one of the reasons why um, I would never announce golf, I don't really have a feel for it. And I don't, I'm not a good enough player to, to put myself in a position. I've played enough tennis to know what it feels like to choke mm. like a dog. And so I, I it, it helps <laughs> me announcing, no, I'm serious. I mean, I, you know, I know what it feels like to have, the glue running through your bloodstream you're trying to surf or hit a forehand. I've, mm-hmm. I've had my forehand break down to the point where it's like a yips thing. Right. You know, I, so I, I played enough to have all the frailties exposed. And um, that's why the thing that I admire most in, in, in any tennis player, it, it isn't even things that I love like effort and energy and the things that Rafa shows. It's just the mental strength to not choke, to execute a shot under pressure, get your mind out of the way and let your body do what it's trained to do. Mm-hmm. That's what I respect and, and, and admire most because I know how hard that is to do. All right. So recently, um, obviously, we've all been looking for things to watch, whether it's Netflix shows or 
um, old games. You know, ESPN has been showing a lot of those. But the, obviously the Jordan documentaries come out, which has been hugely successful. And uh, people have loved it, including myself. So what a, what a treat it was to see you in one of the episodes, Chris, <laughs> as, as a young sportscaster uh, reporting on, on that era. So what was that like as a young guy? You were just coming up. We, I think you were at, with ESPN at the time, weren't you? You were doing Sports Center. Oh yeah, you know yeah. I, I get hired. I was I was hired in uh, in '86. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is I'm coming up on 34 years here, and, and uh, later this month actually when I when I officially signed. So, um, you know, I was I did people were surprised. I got a lot of sex. My phone was blowing up. I was watching behind uh, live, so I wasn't seeing my little cameo there as it mm-hmm. happened. And all of a sudden, my phone starts blowing. Like, what the hell's <laughs> going on? I used to text it. And, and I, they were they were assuming that I knew what they were talking about. You have no idea when you're in one of those documentaries. They don't send you a note saying, hey, you're in episode five and one hour in. And that doesn't happen. So mm-hmm. I'll, I, I, once I caught up, I figured out what they were. And I just it, it was kind of cringy, but also fun. I mean, I, I looked 11 years old when I did SportsCenter. I mean, that, that was I was 30 in that clip, but looked much younger than that. And I thought, wait a minute. The first thing they, they put me in the documentary was me talking about the book that exposed Jordan's gambling with mm. Richard Esquina. It's like, wait a minute, of all the things, I'm, I grew up outside of Chicago. I'm a huge Bulls fan from birth. Right. And, you know, Jordan fan, whatever. I didn't want the one thing in the doc was to be me popping up there talking about his, his golf gambling. Mm-hmm. Then later on, there was another little kind of piece where I just got to uh, sit there and talk about, um, you know, Jordan the player, which was kind of cool. But, yeah, I mean, I did everything, and I did, did all the sports centers you can do, um, kind of woven in and around football and basketball studios. I was never like the main guy on a show for the whole year, but I was like the plug-and-play utility guy on Sports Center for, for quite a few years, actually. And But you never you never made the move up to Connecticut, right? You always had a place in New York, and you, cause you used to tell me about the stories of you you know driving back and forth, <laughs> which, which I used to do covering when we when we at ESPN first started covering some of the bigger European tennis events. You know, I used to go up to Bristol at 3.30 in the morning and drive up there. So um, what, what was the determining factor for you to never sort of make the move to be up – there full-time and want to stay in, in New York City? You know, I, I did actually live in Connecticut when I first joined the company. I, d- I did a show called Scholastic Sports America, a high school sports show um, right out of college. I mm-hmm. really looked 11 years old then. So I lived in Connecticut, although I was on the road every week for like 40 weeks in a row. As long as the school year was, we were mm-hmm. out doing pieces. And then I came back. I actually had to live in Connecticut for a while um, while I was doing some studio stuff. But then as soon as I could, I sort of got free of that and moved down to New York. But, you know, here's the thing I tell everybody. Yes, there's obviously innate abilities that, that go into being successful. There's luck. But it really a lot of, is about your choices mm-hmm. and just knowing the right move, what feels right at the time. And they, they offered me a couple of things that would have put me on a totally different path. I never would have done college game day or college football may have never ended up in tennis. They wanted to send me to LA to be a sports center bureau guy mm. way back in the late eighties. They didn't have anybody out there. It was going to create the position. They thought for sure this young guy is going to go out there and take this job. How could you not want to get out of Bristol and go back to LA and cover the Dodgers and Lakers and something inside just said that it didn't feel right. I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to move back West. I had moved from Colorado to um, Connecticut for the gig and it, something said, hey, you know, 
don't don't say yes to this. And they were <laughs> they were they were just like flummoxed, man. They had no idea why I would say no to it. A month later, they came back and said, "How would you like to do college football sidelines mm. and and report for this show called Game Day?" I said, yes, yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Hand goes up, mm-hmm. and that that sort of put me on this path. So, had I said yes to something that they thought was a no brainer, none of this would have happened. So, um, it, it's 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 odd in life, you know. You know, you can relate. You just get these choices, you get these crossroads, and you hope that you're able to listen to the right voice. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. it's the one inside you and you don't take because I, I never would have gone to ESPN in the first place, Patrick, if I'd listened to my expert advisors out of college. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. You know, the company's seven years old. People forget, like, mm-hmm. it's not like it is now. It was right. sort of like when you started, too, it was a little bit of a yeah, it was a fledgling operation. Like we didn't, no one knew it was going to become what it became. Definitely when we started so, the tennis world, for sure. But I can oh, imagine even before no then, uh, overall. Yeah. What was your first year? Uh, my first year full time. Well, I started doing some uh, stuff for ESPN when I was recovering from my first shoulder surgery, right. which was in '98. Uh, and then right. I, I kind of tried to play off and on periodically '98, '99, and and they had given me a shot to sort of join Chris, uh, Chris, uh, Cliff, and Fred and Mary Carilla was there at the time, so they would kind of plug right. me in here and there. Still let me pursue my plane, which was getting more and more obvious that that wasn't going to happen after my shoulder issues. Um, so it was really probably full time, I'm going to say in late 99, maybe 2000. But you were already doing big matches. I, I remember you were doing like the Australian Open finals, right? You were, you were doing big matches pretty soon for them. But, but by that time, ESPN was established. But I'm going back like 10 years before that. And it was like, you know, I, I chose it because it seemed like it would be the more fun gig mm-hmm. than, than reading scores at a local station. Now, people thought I was crazy. That's not the way you get ahead of this business. You go pay your dues at a small market. As soon as you get decent, you get your resume tape and you move along and you climb the ladder. And, and I, I say this to people all the time, and, and no matter what walk of life is, it's not that important to know exactly what you want to do at a young age. Mm -hmm. For me, it's more important to know what you don't want to do. So you don't put yourself on a path that's going to get you to somewhere that's going to make you unhappy. And had I started at a local station reading scores, I I wouldn't have liked nothing against it. I know plenty of friends to do that. Just it wasn't for me. And so I ignored all that advice and just said, you know what, this this high school thing at ESPN, this going to Connecticut, this just seems fun and challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you make decisions based on that, um, listen to your gut and not what all the experts or your parents or friends say. It, it serves you well. Well, I want to ask you about another, I know, a huge decision that, that you had to make and that you made because, uh, you know, one of the biggest shows for ESPN always for the last 15 years has been College Game Day. You were the, the, the first the her first host there. So you really helped build that whole brand, which has become incredibly successful. You you made the decision to to let that go and to start – you know, doing the Saturday night telecast along with your, you know, which was getting more and more work with ESPN tennis. So I know that was, wasn't easy for you because you love that environment of game day. You know, that's a lot of pressure on you, the host. It's a lot of preparation, the energy of going to all the different locations. So how, what was the determining factor for you in making really a pretty bold decision there? Yeah, actually, to be honest with you, I don't talk about this a lot, but the decision was kind of made for me they were going to make me choose between doing the games on Saturday night and doing the pregame show. 
doing game day. One or the because other. It was too, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was too much. I did both for one season, and that mm-hmm. was the agreement because I wanted to sort of finish out the 25th year on game day in um, in 2014. And, and also, that was when we got the contract to get the playoff, and that's when Brent um, left his assignment. So the job came open. I said, well, let me do both. Mm-hmm. But they said, yeah, but you're not going to continue to do both. Now, Kirk Herbstreit does an amazing job. He does both. But as you know, hosting is a little bit different, a little bit heavier lifting. Yeah, much heavier lifting. Yes. I mean, game day was something. I thank you for those nice yeah. words, by the way. I mean, we we did build it brick by brick mm-hmm. from a show that nobody watched or cared about. And the company wanted to cancel mm-hmm. in 1990 to what it became. But it was really an intense um, workload on on the host. Right. And I took Friday. I, I would sleep like four hours a night on Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday mm-hmm. night. And, and so... I, I, they said, you got to choose. And for me, it was a no brainer because I've always wanted to call games, call matches. That's been my, that was mm-hmm. what I got into this to do. And I thought, you know, 25 years is pretty, a pretty, good, pretty good run, Chris. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, you reach some point where you, I just don't know if it was possible to raise the standard. I thought we were, we were, mm-hmm. we were fighting like hell to maintain it. And there were lots of reasons why they became challenging on game day. But play-by-play play for me will always be like a work in progress. I will always feel like improvement Mm-hmm. is needed and possible. And so I just, I'm going to do something that is out of the comfort zone a little bit, mm-hmm. but uh, in terms of like the challenge, cause you know, you feel Brent shoes. I mean, mm-hmm. Keith Jackson and guys who've had that gig, um, those are legends. And so, you know, I, I was, uh, I had done Thursday night football. I had done Thursday and juggled it with game day, which is really hard. Cause I, good thing, good thing you do that when you're young, cause the travel and the preparation were brutal. I mean, I, and both things suffer when you juggle two things, right? Like you can't, you can't be a high level tennis player and then have another career. Mm-hmm. You can't, you just can't do both at a high level, I think. So, um, I, it, it was kind of made for me, but then I made the choice to go with the games, but they said, you can't, you can't do both forever. And I, I don't regret it for one second. I miss, miss parts of game day for mm-hmm. sure, but I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And you're doing it pretty, pretty damn well, I must say. Now let's get, get over into, into my world, the tennis world a little bit, because you have uh, a different job in tennis, obviously, and, but you have to manage a lot of different types of personalities. So to put it mildly, whether it's me, my brother, John, you know, Chris Everett, Pam Schrott, you know, everybody like in tennis, we all have our own ego and our own way. So Without you know naming names, Chris, because I know you would you're too much of a pro uh, to do that and a team I might, player. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I might you never know. I've, right I've, here, I've right already now. already broken some news here on this podcast. <laughs> but um, you know, talk about how you prepare and sort of what's you because I know your mindset going into working with some people and some matches is got to be different than in another scenario, right? But yeah, but that's what I love about it. I mean, it's a total contrast to football in so many ways. Kirk and I are going to do our 25th season together mm. whenever we play, whenever we play football the next time. Imagine that. Like, I don't think there's another team actually that's, that's been together 25 years. I mean, uh, whether it's been Thursday booth game day or now Saturday night for, for seven years, I don't think there's another longer running like national booth. So I got that in football. What I love about tennis is working with you guys is that sometimes but most more, most often, it's two different matches in a day with two different analysts. Mm-hmm. And you're right. You you know, I, I view my responsibility, you know, calling the score and, and sort of setting it up. But really, it's getting the best out of the analyst. Mm-hmm. And so, like working with you, who I know is going to be like incredibly prepared going in, but also have a really tremendous feel 
for what's going on in the court, I, it, it's a little bit relaxing because I, I know that I don't have to carry this by any stretch. I just have to sort of like ride along because I know you're going to be picking up on things. But yeah, working with BG is very different than working with John or mm-hmm. working right. with Darren yeah. or yeah. Mary Jo or Chrissy. You know, so, but that's fun. That, that makes it great. See, I know going in that there's certain things I can ask Brad to get him going, whether it's trivia or something else. I mean, I, I think what's, what's really cool is this tennis family has been together now for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think we all sort of know how each other's brains are wired, don't you think? Like you, you, you do a great job straddling the play-by-play world and analysts. So you mm-hmm. have to be in that spot too. And you know when you do a match with one of our colleagues, it's different than doing it with somebody else. See, how, how can you get the best out of them? Sure. What Do you have to pull back a little bit? I mean, obviously – um, when we do the really big matches and it's you, John and myself, mm-hmm. that's a really different dynamic, right? right? Yep. All of us have to talk less. All of us have to try to work hard to give the match some oxygen. So to me, that's what makes calling tennis extremely underappreciated. Like mm-hmm. people think that they listen to matches. I'm sure that people listen to this podcast are fans and they watch coverage. Oh, you guys talk too much. Oh, you, you don't say this. <laughs> or why, why didn't you say that? Or, right. You sort of rely on the viewer to understand the difference between a first round match at Miami and a Wimbledon final, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you, you you have to understand that it's a different level of uh, preparation. It's a different level of presentation. That the toys at our disposal, what's at stake on the court, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that what makes it fun to do tennis is constantly adjusting to that and constantly. Um, you staying on your toes. I mean, it's, that's what makes it challenging. The people that, that, uh, that analyze the sport well and call it well, I think I just have massive respect because viewers are not, they're not supposed to know how tricky it is, mm-hmm. but they never will. And people who, people in this business who don't do tennis, um, unless they're really astute and they pay attention, um, they don't understand how tricky it is to do well. All right, let me ask you this before I let you go because you've already given me <clears throat> a ton of time, Chris, and I appreciate it. No, we're good. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, whatever what, you want. What is the next um, live sporting event that you will call? Give me a prediction. Man, I want to believe it's the U.S. Open in mm. some form. Mm-hmm. I want to believe that they're going to agree to scale the event down. Mm-hmm. You're more dialed into the USCA than I am, and they know that a full-scale U.S. Open is probably impossible. Right. Um be given where, where New York's going to be in late August, but maybe, maybe it's workable to do it either without fans or fewer fans, smaller draws, limited to singles, use less courts, less officials. You'd have much less entourage in mm-hmm. place. And if the top players would agree to do it, if mm-hmm. Novak's going to get on a plane and Roger's going to get on a plane and come from Europe, because you got, you got to be able to travel from Europe to New York and feel safe about it or, or nobody's going to come. Right. You gotta be able to travel from if, pretty much anywhere if you're a player, right? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, mostly you know, sure. being a European-based sport, you right. know, I think it, it, if 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 you can't get in a plane uh, and get to New York and feel like they're, you're going to be looked after, I, I don't think the top guys would do it. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe I'm wrong. I, I I haven't talked to them. I think if the players are into it, there may be a way for it to happen. I, I sure hope it happens because I think it would, as you know, you know, being a New Yorker, um, it might not be the first but it would be one of the biggest mm-hmm. and it, the symbolism, the symbolism of the U S open being back in the hot spot for coronavirus in America would be huge. If it can happen safely and prudently, we all, we all, no one wants to be reckless about this. Right, right? Right. I don't want to go back in there. If it's going to be, if they haven't fought it out, 
But if they thought it out and people sign up for it and they're into it, um, it would be cool. If it's not going to be that, then I have no next time I'm going to get in the booth. I, I, I don't think college football seems super likely in the fall. Mm-hmm. People hate to hear that. They hate when, when someone goes on media and says that because everybody wants it to happen. I want it to happen too, but I don't think the country is going to be in the same place enough to have a consensus to start up in September. So I'm, I'm hoping the, the open is the next time mm. I'm on the mic to give you a long answer. Yeah. I've heard you say that you think college football may move to maybe a January, February start. So obviously all, all this stuff's up in the air at this moment, isn't it? Hopefully after yeah. the Australian open, like, I, I think, I think, mm. you know, a February, March start wedge it in there. Um, it would be disruptive for a lot of reasons, but it would be a lesser of evils and they would be able to keep the TV revenue. As you know, you know, U.S. Open doesn't have the same insurance policy Wimbledon does. Right. So right. Wimbledon will never stage an event with an asterisk, right? I think we agree on that. If, if they can't stage the full championships, they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And they're going to, and their insurance policy paid off. Well, the French Open doesn't have that policy. The USTA didn't have that policy. So for them to lose the TV revenues, as you know, is just devastating. So even if they can't get the live fan gate there, um, they could they could probably in their mind they're what they're wrestling with I think right now mm-hmm. is the TV piece enough to stage a championship of some sort and do you want that in the history books right that there was a U.S. Open that wasn't a 128 draw that never had doubles that year or you know is is that maybe is two that out, maybe okay? two out of three sets you know who knows who knows right. I mean I think I think everything is on the table I think that there's a there's a potential that the sports calendar could be forever changed by this. And I don't mean mm-hmm. like shrunken, but I, I think that the time shift, certain things about how sports are played, when they're played, I think there's going to be possible, if not permanent, at least some long-term changes to, to how sports are, are played. Because we just don't know, first of all, if you open up Arthur Ashe Stadium, how many people are going to go in there and mm-hmm. watch a match? Mm-hmm. You're going to have like, you're going to have everybody in a mask right. wedged in there. How's that going to work? Are people in New York ready for it? So there's all these questions they get, they got to answer and they got to answer them pretty soon because if they're going to stage a championship as scheduled in some modified form, um, you know, I know, I know it feels like time is frozen in, in some ways during this, but time is also moving really quick mm-hmm. and we're getting, we're getting to mid May here and now they're going to have to figure some things out. Yeah, so to- I hope, I hope they can do it in a safe way. It'd be cool. Yeah, and the last question for you, Chris, is will you and I share a table together in January at super normal again? Yes, absolutely. I think by January, I hope okay. we're going to be good. Right? I mean, yeah, Super Normal, by the way, is a, a fantastic restaurant. <laughs> and, and Chris usually buys, by the way, because it's a little spendy in the sushi there. <laughs> but they got the best, uh, what are the best uh, dumplings? Dumplings, yeah, the, the chill, dumplings. chili dumplings. Yeah. And that, that's sort of our Sunday afternoon um, tradition before the tournament starts. I love it. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're also a restaurant enthusiast. So I, mean, I know, it, look, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff you can't do, and there's people with real problems. I don't want to make light of that because being able to go to a restaurant isn't the end of the world. But I do look forward to getting back to a restaurant and having nice food served in front of you, like like what you're describing. <laughs> that would, that yeah. would be nice. I think we all. If we got to wait till Melbourne, we will. But I, whenever it happens, I'll look forward to it. Chris, uh, a pleasure and a privilege to work alongside you all these years, and I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, you keep uh, inspiring us on your Instagram, et cetera. I love it. And uh, <laughs> I, look, I look forward to seeing you hopefully sooner rather than later. All right, back at you. I appreciate it. Keep up the great work. And, uh, yeah, let's hope we're in a booth together soon. Sounds good. The one and only Chris Fowler, everybody. 
Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Music